The word evangelical carries a lot of baggage these days. Now, there was a time when it primarily denoted a theological conviction that included a recognition of the scriptures as God's word, an understanding of our need for salvation through Jesus, and a commitment to caring for the least of these. Unfortunately, that's no longer what most people in the world think of when they hear the word evangelical. Today, evangelical has become, for a lot of people, synonymous with American right-wing conservative politics. Now, in his book, delightfully titled When Evangelicals Sneeze, I love that title, Michael Cooper explores the historic meaning of evangelicalism and how its meaning has changed in recent years. And in this interview, we dive into those same topics. Now, real quick, uh, I'd like to invite you once again to join the Spiritual Life and Leadership Facebook group. It's a space for people like you and me to raise questions, share ideas, offer prayers, and find encouragement in our own journeys of spiritual life and spiritual leadership. Uh, I've created a simple link to help you find the group. Just type www.marcuswatson.com slash SLL group in your browser, and that will take you to the Spiritual Life and Leadership Facebook group. Uh, again, that's Marcus with a K, marcuswatson.com slash SLL group, as in Spiritual Life and Leadership group. Well, I hope you'll join us, and I hope that you will enjoy this eye-opening conversation with Michael Cooper. I'm Marcus Watson, and this is Episode 79 of Spiritual Life and Leadership. Hey everyone, I'm here with uh, Michael Cooper. Uh, Michael Cooper is the author of When Evangelicals Sneeze and uh, is also a missiologist in residence for a mission agency. Hi Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right, Marcus, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you again. Um, Speaking of which, uh, I actually had you on, uh, you were my guest on episode 69, exactly 10 episodes ago, uh, and we talked about your book, Ephesiology, uh, which is a book about the Ephesian movement in the first century as sort of a model for mission today. And uh, so I just mentioned that to say it was a great episode, and uh, I, w- I invite listeners to uh, check that out, and uh, you'll learn a lot about Michael from uh, that um, uh, interview as well. Yeah, uh, but uh, anyway, but I'm glad to have you back uh, to talk about your new book, um, and, uh, let me, but let me start. So we, we did, uh, I usually start with like three get to know you questions. Uh, since I've had you before, I'm just going to ask you one. <laughs> uh, and here's my question, uh, Michael, um, what job would you be terrible at? Mm, well, that, you know what, that was not a difficult one for me to answer. Actually. Um, I, uh, my background, academic background was that I studied architecture, uh, for my undergrad degree and worked a little bit in, in construction. And the one job that I just really stunk at was, uh, the taping and floating drywall. I, I just could oh. not get it. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I could hang drywall. Uh, I, I did all right doing that. I could I could mm-hmm. uh, cut it fast and get it hung very quickly, but uh, the taping and floating I could just never do. So that's, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. What 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 does floating drywall mean? I I can. Oh, it's you know it's the mud that they put over the. the oh, it's not okay. actually tape. It's just a, a strip that they cover yes. the joints with, and then the mud that right. they put on it to kind of smooth it out and yeah. and 
put over top of the screws and or nails or, huh. or whatever just to make the drywall uh, flat. Interesting. So it can receive the paint better. Yeah. That, so that's harder to do than it sounds, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> to do it yeah, well. You know, huh? I, yeah. I tried doing it in our, our uh, we used to live in Illinois and uh, I finished our basement and tried to do it and boy, it just, it looked horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, funny. Well, good. Uh, well, I'm glad you're not doing that for a living anymore. That's right. That's right. I, w- I wouldn't get very far. <laughs> good. <laughs> So uh, what you are doing is mission work and writing, and um, you wrote a new book uh, titled When Evangelicals Sneeze, which is a fantastic title. I want to hear more about that Mm. soon. And then subtitled Curing the American Church from the Plague of Identity Loss. Now, uh, near the end of that book, um, you tell the story of of when you resigned from evangelicalism. First of all, can you tell us that story and why why you did that? You know, it was just one of those moments that I felt like it was needed uh, mm. to, to make a statement. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't anything new. I can remember, you know, when I taught at uh, uh, Trinity International University, a couple of colleagues and I were would always have conversations about, you know, who do we write our resignation letter to? If we did want to re- uh, resign from evangelicalism, because even back then in the early 2000s, there were things going on within evangelicalism that we thought just really didn't represent the the church at all. And and in fact, we thought that they hurt the witness of mm-hmm. of those of us who um, felt like we were, you know, people who wanted to proclaim the gospel and so on. Mm-hmm. And so, in in this instance, um, this was in November of last year. I uh, work with the uh, Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization on an issue group called the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative, hmm. where evangelicals and Orthodox and Catholics and uh, uh, Coptics will come together occasionally and and talk about things that we have in common and uh, and things that we can work toward because we have recognized that we do have a, a shared mission of de- hmm. declaring God's glory. And last November, I was in uh, in uh, Egypt for one of these consultations. And um, as we were sitting around a conference table, a young Palestinian evangelical said what nobody else would say in the room, because we all knew that it was an issue, but we wouldn't speak about it. Mm-hmm. And that was the issue of the effect that Donald Trump is having on mm-hmm. the evangelical name around the world. Mm-hmm. And the story that she related was just simply that because she identified as evangelical, that the people in her community persecuted her because Mm. they associated evangelical with Donald Trump. Mm. And, you know, it was heartbreaking to hear that. It it wasn't a surprise. I mean, we know that uh, evangelicals uh, or certain part of evangelicalism has been tied to uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And we've known that this has caused, you, you know, a, a real uh, issue in in uh, proclaiming the gospel to people because they will automatically associate us with Trump and his immorality and you know the vulgar things that he says and his uh, lifestyle and and so on. 
And so it just came to the point where I thought, boy, if I'm going to be stigmatized because of a politician rather than because of Jesus Christ, then I want to resign from mm. uh, evangelicalism. Yeah. And so it, it just it, on a whim, I was sitting next to Doug Birdsall, who was the former executive director for the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization. And and if there's anybody that would resemble a pope in evangelicalism, uh -huh. it would have uh -huh. been Doug. And so I turned to Doug and just verbally said, Doug, I resign from mm -hmm. evangelicalism. And you know, we had a, maybe a small uh, little chuckle over that, but um, I think this is a serious uh, problem that we're facing um, around the world and, and we're facing in our country as well, where increasingly the evangelicals are losing their voice yeah. because of the association with, um, you know, conservative uh, politicians, particularly yeah. with with uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, it is a a strange uh thing that has happened. I uh, you know, uh, similarly was in a meeting several years ago um uh, since the last election um uh and the president of a major seminary was there and uh, a seminary that called itself evangelical and he said I don't, I don't know if we should call ourselves evangelical mm -hmm. anymore. And um and it's it's a challenge. Uh what so maybe talk about what it means to be evangelical. One of the things you talk about in the book is um, you have three marks of evangelicalism, and well, uh, I won't mention them. I'll let you mention them. Uh, <laughs> you probably know the ones that I'm talking about, um, yeah. and maybe why why do those matter? Uh, ha have they been? Have we lost them? Um, yeah, say something about that. Yeah, I I think we have lost them, and that's one of the reasons why I've I've written this book um, because I think it's important for us to, and we're at a point in the history of evangelicalism where we need to have a very clear understanding of who we are, and I'm afraid that we've lost that identity because over the years, really over the past um, probably twenty twenty five thirty years. Uh, th there has been this movement of evangelicals that are increasingly uh, political. And uh, and I think we can date that back to the 1970s in the moral majority uh, led mm -hmm. by Jerry Falwell, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, it was the legislation of morality that was high on the agenda of mm -hmm. evangelicals. And and I understand that. I get that. And, and they're are moral issues that we need to wrestle with in our country. Yeah. Um, I'm not so certain that they should be wrestled with in a political manner, but um, right. yeah, so just traditionally, uh, evangelicalism has been defined by different people. Uh, mm -hmm. David Beddington, for example, in, in the late 80s, defined it in terms of its biblicism, you know, its focus on scripture. It's what he called uh, uh, crucicentrism, mm. the, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, uh, conversionism, and that you know being the proclamation of the gospel, and activism, uh, mm. focusing on the missionary activity of being in the community and, and engaging people, mm. and uh, and that I mean that's a fair definition. And then in the book, I talk more about Alistair McGrath, who in '95 wrote a book. Uh, um, talking about, you know, this whole uh, thing that we're continuing to talk about in terms of our identity. And, and uh, the book was uh, the, the future 
uh, gosh, I can't remember the title now, but this would be a book I recommend to, uh, to uh, your listeners. But uh, he, he outlined six uh, okay. points that kind of unite evangelicals, and they're similar to uh, Bevington's. Okay. The supreme authority of Scripture uh, is one point, the majesty of Christ, the lordship of the Holy Spirit, the need for personal conversion, the priority of evangelism, and the importance of the Christian community. And those, I think, largely evangelicals will agree uh, on. They might have nuances to these different uh, points, uh, for example, in Europe, many European mm -hmm. evangelicals would not have such a high view of Scripture uh, because they don't—they're not coming out of the modernist uh, debates mm -hmm. in the United States, which really prompted evangelicals to to make a a very uh, specific statement about the inerrancy of Scripture. Mm -hmm. But in, in the book, what I'm trying to get to is really a, a reshaping uh, and even a restoring of the evangelical church around what seemed to me to be clear mm -hmm. in Scripture in regards to three specific areas of focus in ministry. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I take these from... Uh, the, the book of Revelation, you know, Jesus writes these beautiful letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And, and building on the work that I did in my previous book, uh, Physiology, I mm -hmm. unpack at a little bit more greater detail uh, the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting as I've been thinking about that letter and thinking about Jesus's ministry and Paul's ministry, it, mm -hmm. it just dawned on me that, wow, these, these guys were talking about the same things uh, throughout their entire ministries. And so uh, how I saw this in Jesus's ministry was, uh, for example, when he talks about the great commandment, the, the worship of the one true God, mm. and uh, how adamant he is of there only being one true God, and we are to only worship one true God, yeah. uh, this great commandment, and then uh, that we find in Matthew twenty-two, and and then what I've called the great compassion that we find in Matthew twenty-five, where uh, we have this beautiful passage that Jesus describes uh, the, the king and uh, and how uh, the, his his servants are taking care of those who are naked and uh, who are imprisoned and so on. And uh, he ends this story with a beautiful verse, in as much as you have done this to the least of these, you have done this to me. Mm -hmm. So that there's the, a compassion that we're to have uh, in regards to people who are marginalized and exploited. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, Matthew 28 is the Great Commission that mm -hmm. uh, we are called to make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, wherever they are, uh, without yeah. discrimination, and uh, and that those that threefold ministry of the great commandment, the great compassion, the great commission, mm -hmm. is a thread that we see all throughout Scripture. Um, and I I put it in the vernacular uh, for mm -hmm. us as I talk about it in the book that the great commandment is the defense of the faith. Mm -hmm. uh, the great compassion is our engagement in issues of social justice. 
in the Great Commission, of course, is our continued declaration of the glory of God to all the nations. And those three things come out really beautifully in Jesus's letter to the church in Ephesus, where he uh, initially uh, commends the church in Ephesus for standing against the false teachers, the false apostles, he says. Hmm. And so the, the church in Ephesus, you know, it, uh, Revelation is written in the 90s. Um, and so for about 40 years, the, the church struggled with mm. th- this onslaught of false apostles who would come in and teach people and lead people astray. And, and you know, Paul in 2 Timothy ultimately comes to the realization that everyone in, Ephesus, in Asia had left him. And you get the impression that there are a number of false teachers that are bringing in false doctrine into the church and leading people astray. But Jesus commends the church and says that they stood against those false uh, apostles. And so a a beautiful picture of defending the faith um, and how necessary that is even even in our world today. And then he commends them for one other thing, and that was that they, the church stood against the work of the Nicolaitans. And I go into a little bit more detail in the book about the Nicolaitans hmm. that, um, again, we don't know a lot about them. And what we do know comes from Irenaeus in mm-hmm. a book that he wrote called Against Heresies. And, uh, and these Nicolaitans are associated with uh, a deacon that was uh, had the name Nicholas that we read about in Acts chapter 6. Hmm. And as Irenaeus talks about this deacon, he says that this was a deacon who uh, desired to be completely uh, surrendered to Christ to such a degree that he gave up sexual relations with his wife and hmm. permitted others to have sexual relations hmm. with his wife. Wow. And so something in Ephesus was going on that was reminiscent of uh, th- that activity, that uh, really exploitation of women. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. And we know exactly what was happening in Ephesus in this regard. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk about this in Ephesiology, but also in, in this latest book, that um, there were women who – had a, a certain level of intellectual capacity that would uh, th- join men in symposium and they would entertain them uh, from their intellect, but also from uh, sexual stimulation. Mm. And so uh, th- this activity was a common activity in, mm. in uh, not just in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. And so Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I commend you for standing against these works. Mm. And it it was really the works of the exploitation of women. Mm. And so I look at this as uh, the the church being active in engaging in issues of social justice. So we have the, you know, the defense of the faith as they stood against the uh, false teachers, the false apostles, uh, the acts of apologetics, if you will, we have uh, acts of social justice. And then right in the middle, in between those two commendations, Jesus gives a warning that would uh, could eventually remove their lampstand, and that was that they had lost their first love. Mm-hmm. And as I argued in uh, Ephesiology, that first love is a desire to declare the glory of God, because that's what the book of Revelation is about, mm-hmm. and all throughout that book is the declaration of God's glory. 
and the church in Ephesus was uh, was in jeopardy of losing that first love, and so Jesus calls them back to doing those works. And so, and so you see that same kind of ministry focus that we see in Jesus's life, the great commandment, great compassion, great commission, also in the church in Ephesus, the defense of the faith, the proclamation of uh, the gospel and the standing in the gap for uh, social justice. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really great um, overview of, of what it means then to be evangelical. Um, how do you, do, you, do you feel like we've lost that? Well, you talk about identity loss. Uh, yeah. Say something about what we've lost in, in that regard. Yeah, it, you know, it's been, it's interesting to look back. You know, that saying is that uh, um, history gives you kind of a 2020 vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we look at our past, we can see things a little bit more clearly. Uh, but what we see historically in evangelicalism, uh, as, particularly in the, you know, going back to the 1900s, coming into the 2000s, uh, we see swings of a pendulum in evangelicalism where, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the, in the late 1800s into the 1900s, there's a real concern that Christianity was becoming too focused on the social gospel. Mm. And um, and there today there are those who would suggest that any focus on social justice will lead to a social gospel, mm. um, and I think that's an an overcorrective uh, in some way. You know, it doesn't necessarily correlate that if you're focusing on social justice that you will proclaim a social gospel, mm-hmm. but there is a concern, of course. Uh, that that could happen because it did happen in the in the 1900s, hmm. um, and so we lost that. And so the the corrective was to you know become so focused on the issue of personal salvation uh, of individuals. Um, similarly, with you know the modernist uh, the fundamentalist modernist debates in uh, the the 1900s, the mid 1900s. Um, that caused many to uh, kind of reject intellectualism hmm. in evangelicalism and again focus solely on the gospel proclamation, the salvation of people's souls, uh, because they they viewed um, intellectualism as a, a, a temptation to stray from what was believed to be the main focus of the church, and that was the declaration of, of God's glory through the proclamation of the gospel. But um, but it seems to me, at least as I look at the New Testament church, that those three things were present uh, throughout the church, hmm. that they defended the faith, they they had acts of apologetics, if you will, they engaged in social justice, mm-hmm. and they continued to declare the gospel um, mm. to other people. And and um, and the the fact that where we are today, I think, in evangelicalism uh, is showing us that we've we've lost our identity. Mm. Um, you know, we still at some level reject intellectualism in evangelicalism. Mm. At another level, you know, we reject the need to be a part of engaging in issues of social justice. And I think 
when we do that, we what's resulted is that we've lost our identity and we've substituted um, in place of the, the engagement in apologetics and engagement in social justice, our engagement in politics. Mm-hmm. And so evangelicalism has almost become not quite synonymous with politics, but um, – but there is certainly a very strong tie uh, between evangelicals and and conservative politics. Yeah. So um, uh, one of the things that you talk about, and I was a, a little bit like uh, surprised to see um, <laughs> the language that you used to describe at least Uh-oh. a version of <laughs> modern <laughs> evangelicalism. You talk about a group that you called Trump Jellicles. And, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned before we started, I said, wow, I was like, wow, you're pushing some buttons there, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Um, what do you, what, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. and, and how does that fit into, um, this loss of identity? Yeah. You know, you know, and I don't mean anything negative by using the term Trump Jellicle, but I, I was trying to think of how do you describe this group of people that are uh, politically conservative. Um, they will typically be pro-guns. Um, they believe in uh, the, the sanctity of human life and uh, are, are generally socially conservative. Um, they're deeply nationalistic. And, uh, and all of these things inform the way in which they conduct themselves politically. Mm. Um, they're typically very strongly pro-Israel as well. And, um, and, and that, that describes a, a, a group of people who will identify as evangelicals, but it doesn't describe all of evangelicalism. It just describes a, a certain a segment of the evangelical population. And I do talk about three other uh, groups in in what we might think of in terms of a spectrum of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. uh, th- those that I would call evangelical deconstructionists who really lean toward the social justice issues uh, more than the, the, a Trump-jellical would, for example. I, I talk about the uh, postmodern evangelical who, as I describe them in the book, uh, this is a person who really tries to seek uh, an understanding of of Christianity in the early church, and particularly in the church fathers uh, from the second century up until the fourth century, and perhaps even beyond that to the sixth century. Mm-hmm. And then I talk about uh, fundamentalists mm-hmm. um, who really have separated themselves completely from culture. Um, and, and uh, see culture as, as something that is, uh, bad and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And so I, I do talk about other, uh, groups of, uh, evangelicals, but it's the Trump jellicals that I'm particularly concerned about because they've been the most vocal, uh, in the evangelical world today. And, and not just in, um, in the United States, but around the world. Um, there are, those who would uh, easily uh, be identified as Trump jellicals living in other parts of the world who just have an affinity for uh, very conservative, uh, socially conservative politics and the sanctity of human life and uh, the, the pro guns and and uh, 
the, you know, the idea of uh, a Judeo-Christian ethic uh, that the United States was founded upon and being pro-Israel and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, um, it, and, it, you know, what makes this group unique, though, and, and those issues in and of themselves, I, I'm not saying anything about, you know, people have different views on whether – uh, they're pro-gun or pro-life or mm-hmm. pro-Israel or or whatever, um, and and uh, and you know people can share those views. They can hold those views and still be very solidly evangelical and have a solid identity as an evangelical. But what sets this group apart, I think, from others is the person of Donald Trump himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the the immorality of this mm-hmm. current president. Uh, and we can, I'm sure, remember uh, the shock on our faces when we heard of him grabbing the gen- genitals yeah. of women mm-hmm. or the relationships he had with prostitutes and a human mm-hmm. trafficker. And, of course, we're almost daily hearing the, his use of vulgar language and cyberbullying and his yeah. narcissistic uh, pursuits of personal interest and, and the racial epitaphs mm-hmm. um, that we hear uh, coming from this president are, are just, I mean, they're so antithetical to Christianity mm-hmm. that for a group of people who would identify as evangelical to support that I think merits uh, um, a uniqueness to them. And and so that's how I arrive at the Trump jellical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is um, a, a strange phenomenon. Uh, I, I, I have to agree. I, I, I just for some clarity, would you say that there's a difference between a Trump jellical and an evangelical person who voted for Trump? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I it was uh, watching an interview the other day, a friend of mine was doing with uh, Michael Brown, and and uh, it, Michael would be one of those people who mm-hmm. voted for Trump, but doesn't align himself with the morality of Trump. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so ab- absolutely. And so what I'm trying not to do in this book is to make a definitive political statement about uh, the support of Trump. And in fact, um, I don't know if your listeners would be interested to know that I haven't made up my mind y- yet uh, mm-hmm. on this 2020 election, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm really wrestling with uh, this idea that seems to come out uh, to almost every election cycle that uh, we end up voting for the lesser of two evils. Yep. Yep. And I'm not so certain that that's a, a good motivation uh, for uh, voting. Um, but I, I realize that seems to be the situation that we're in right now. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So evangelicalism is sort of a, an, um, an umbrella uh, or a larger category in which we have different groups like deconstructionists and fundamentalists and Trump-jellicals. And then what was the fourth one again? Fundamentalists. Uh, fun, okay, I mentioned that. Oh, one. no, the postmodern, the postmodern. Postmodern, yeah. yeah. So there are all kinds of all kinds of different evangelicals. What they have in common, or at least, uh, I sh- uh, well, uh, what the umbrella <laughs> evangelical um, f- fold, so to speak, has at its core are these three uh, things the way I have them written down are sound teaching, gospel proclamation, and social justice. You use slightly different language, um, mm. 
I think, but the, right. Those are the three. Yes. Um, and it seems like those are the things that are perhaps getting lost. Um, uh, so how do we, or those are the things that are at the core of evangelical identity. And maybe these four different subgroups have lost one or more of these, uh, three things. Is that kind of how, how you might say that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or they've, or we've become distracted by other things. Mm, okay. I think so, might be a better way to, to put that. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. We've become distracted by other things that take the focus off of these three core things. So um, what, what do we need to do to reclaim? So, uh, well, let me ask two questions. First of all, what do we risk losing if we don't, if we aren't, we aren't clear on who we are as evangelicals or if we, if we do lose our identity, what, what do we risk losing and how do we reclaim our identity mm. as evangelicals? Boy, this is a tough one, Marcus, um, because there's, there can be an argument made that, um, we we might not be able to recover uh, f- mm. from from our loss of identity. You know, there's a there's a stigma now associated with being an evangelical, and unfortunately, that stigma is like what I experienced in Egypt uh, last mm. November, mm-hmm. where um, where we are automatically uh, associated with Donald Trump rather than yeah. being associ- associated with Jesus Christ. Mm. And so I think that the tragedy here uh, is the loss of our witness, the loss of our voice mm. in uh, the lives of people, because we've become so aligned with you know, either solely in social justice or we're solely aligned in politics that we're just losing uh, credibility in uh in our world today and i think this is a global issue uh to be honest um it's very difficult these days to be an evangelical whether you know you're american or or from another country mm-hmm. um yeah you, you know and, and here's the the sad thing about this for me because i i live in the mission world is that the majority of evangelicals are outside of the United States. You know, mm-hmm. There are an estimated 660 million uh, evangelicals, and uh, 60 million of them are in the United States. 600 million are outside of this country. And yet, and this is where I get the title for the book, When oh, Evangelicals yeah. Sneeze. Yeah, I, I've been meaning um, to ask you about that. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> when evangelicals sneeze, meaning when we sneeze in the United States, the rest of the world, the rest of the evangelical world catches a cold. Hmm. And um, and that, of course, is coming from a, 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 a 19th, 19th? Uh, no, 18th century diplomat uh, who once quipped, uh, when France sneezes, the rest of Europe catches a cold, hmm. speaking economically. Hmm. Um, about France's influence in Europe, and and um, and and we don't realize that in the United States because, unfortunately, I think we are the evangelicals in America seem to be so um, ethnocentric isn't the right word, but we're mm. so self-centered mm. uh, that we don't realize that the things that we do and the things that we say here do have an impact on the rest of the world. Mm. And so when we sneeze, if we're engaged in, in politics, um, if we're not engaged in addressing social justice, if we're not defending the faith, 
if we're not engaging in gospel proclamation, that eventually will impact the rest of the world. Hmm. And, uh, and that's a deep, deep concern that I have. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel a little bit bummed out right now. I don't paint a very good picture. And I, I, yeah, I it's, wish uh, I could. Well, right. Well, so, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we lose, uh, the word evangelical, right? I guess, I guess the hope is what for me is that, you know, just because, um, the, the designation may have lost its meaning. That doesn't mean that the reality of, God's presence and people mm-hmm. um, uh, are no longer there, right? Uh, God is still at work. God's people right. are still at work. Uh, God still has his people, even if the name evangelical has been usurped by something else. Um, and maybe let's let's close with this, but what, what hope do we have um, in light of everything we just talked about? Yeah, well, you know what? We, of all people, should have hope because of what Christ has done for us. And uh, and I think there is there is hope for us, and I think that hope lies in us coming to the point to understand that we as evangelicals, whether or not we're going to use that name, uh, that doesn't really concern us. But that we as evangelicals, we have a common mission, mm-hmm. um, and we need to rediscover what that mission is. And I think that's where we've gone sideways in the context of the United States is that we've lost that mission. But if we can recover and understand that our mission is in those three areas of mm-hmm. defending the faith, you know, we're in a very difficult place right now uh, in terms of what evangelicals believe in the United States. And we need to first defend the faith to ourselves to make sure that we really understand who we are and what we believe, but to accurately defend the faith to others. Um, we, we need, of all people, uh, that we should understand the need to help those who are marginalized and exploited, just as Jesus did. And we need to recover that, and we need to recover the heart of the proclamation of the gospel. I think if if the church could rediscover those three things, hmm. then there is great hope for yeah. uh, a change in our country. But you know, the, here's the concern, and gosh, I don't want to always be a bummer. Uh, but the mm-hmm. the concern I have is that we will just grasp tightly onto what we believe without really being open to what God might be trying to teach us. Mm. And I've wondered, and, and many are wondering, if we're not in this period of time, in this crisis, uh, the, the, the health pandemic that we're in right now, mm-hmm. the, the racial tensions that we're experiencing in our country, as well as the political tensions, mm-hmm. if God is not trying to use this time for us as evangelicals to come to a, uh, in, uh, a better understanding of who we are, as united around one mission to declare his glory uh, mm. through defending the faith, the proclamation of the gospel, and through standing in the gap for the marginalized. Um, and so that that's what gives me hope. And in fact, I, I conclude uh, the book and say that if we can do that as evangelicals, I will gladly rescind my uh, resignation from evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And I believe that we can, but I think it's going to take some strong uh, leadership 
um, some honest reflection on our part and, uh, and, and a willingness to um, leave our hands open to what we believe about politics, especially, uh, so that we can really understand what Jesus's mission was on this earth and what is our mission here. Yeah. Amen. Uh, well, Michael, thank you for uh, being here today and for sharing all of this. Let me uh, just ask: How can people find out more about you and about the book uh, if they'd like to? If they'd like to find you or the book? Yeah, the book. The book will be available on Amazon, if not already. Um, uh, it comes out August the sixth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to find out more about who I am and what I do, um, we have a website. Just simply ephesiology.com where we're, we're really focusing on trying to rediscover the, the essence of the movement in the church in Ephesus uh, in the first century and use that as a, a way in which we can apply some principles to our world today so that we can you know, better understand what does it mean to uh, genuinely be on God's mission. And so, yeah, so th- that's a good place to, to find me. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, good. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you for um, this book. And uh, it's a great book. Uh, I read it and uh, I, I recommend it. And so anyway, thanks, Mike, uh, Michael, for, for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I just want to say that I, I really love Michael's heart in this conversation. Right? There wasn't a political agenda. If there was an agenda of any kind, I think we would have to say that it was a, a theological agenda or a spiritual agenda. What I heard from Michael was a call for evangelicals to re-embrace what it really means to be evangelical. And what does it really mean? Well, to use Michael's language, it means faithfully living out the great commandment the great compassion, and the great commission, right? That's what's at the core of evangelicalism. And speaking for myself, that's what I want my life and my leadership to be about. Well, for those of you who are Patreon partners, Michael offers some additional books and resources that I think you'll find really valuable. Uh, If you're not a Patreon partner, uh, you can become a Patreon partner for as little as $1 a month. And I want to invite you to become a Patreon partner if this podcast has in any way been a blessing to you. Uh, Patreon partners help to make this podcast possible. And if you'd like to find out more about Patreon or how to become a partner, just go to www.marcuswatson.com slash Patreon. And again, that's Marcus with a K, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Well, thank you so much for being here, and I will see you next time here on Spiritual Life and Leadership. Spiritual Life and Leadership.